0: Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 3. For those that might be listening to or viewing this sermon later, I would recommend that you also read Romans 9, 13 through 24, Luke 16, 19 through 31, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 34 through 48, 58 through the end of the chapter, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and Revelation chapters 5, verses 8 through 10, to give yourself the same framework that we have as we approach John 3:16 this morning. John chapter 3 and verse 16, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. God's love for believers caused him to send his son to guarantee their salvation, that none of them would perish, but all would have everlasting life. God's love for his elect caused him to send his son to rescue his elect from their sins, that they might not perish but have everlasting life, the evidence of which is their belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great divider of the human race. There is no offer in John 3.16. There never has been an offer. There's no appeal in John 3.16 for Nicodemus to get down on his knees and pray the sinner's prayer. It is the declaration of a theological and soteriological fact of God sending his son, who would die a crucifixion death, in order to guarantee the eternal life of all of God's elect, chosen out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the planet. There is not an offer of salvation in order to make you the big difference maker. That is nauseating and sickening. And yet that's all the world has to offer is an offer. And you get to be the difference maker. Our God is the difference maker. He is the potter. Clay has never made a difference. The potter makes the difference. And so we ask you to read Romans 9, 13 through 24 to be reminded of the God that we're dealing with. Praise his glorious name. He has loved his people. He's created the greatest drama in the history of the universe to bypass sinning angels and to save you and to save me. It's incredible. No wonder they desire to look into these things. The ones that were preserved in their righteousness. Listen, the fallen angels, the sinning angels, they know that they are going to perish. They know that a day of their torment is coming. Would to God it were being preached from every pulpit. There's a whole lot more coming than what you see with your naked eyes. The eye of faith tells us from the word of God that there is a terrible day coming. There is a burning hell, my brothers and sisters. And praise be to God for his love that has guaranteed through Jesus Christ the surety of our souls and his only begotten son that we shall never perish in that place of perishing, the lake of fire, but we shall have everlasting life. Because God has loved us as he's called us out of the world. It's out of every kindred. It's out of every tribe. It's out of every nation. It's not every nation, tribe, or kindred, or people. It's out of them. And that's why so many go to hell. We just read in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 5 that he washed us from our sins. But many are not washed from their sins. They are sent to hell for their sins. Right. All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Every one of us in this room have lied before. Right. Yet, there is something that God does not remember. That's right. Their sins and iniquities. Will I remember no more? Amen. Well, why does he remember the sins and iniquities of most? Because Jesus never died for them. And because Jesus never died for them, it proves to us from John three sixteen that God never loved them. Because everyone that God loved, he sent his son for, and that son laid down his life to wash them from their sins, to guarantee them not perishing, but having everlasting life. Let's start with the word for and this wonderful verse. It's our verse. They don't understand it. The outline that I am working on right now that is not yet published is now up to 30 heresies that come out of John 3, 14 through 21, by those who do not understand these words, by those who refuse to humble themselves to what the Bible says constraining the interpretation of these words. Four, there is a connection being made as we open up the 16th verse because John is a recording A a communication exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus in a night. And Jesus is laying truth on Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, that he has never heard before. And first of all, it started with the new birth. And that ran its course through verse 13, although there were some things said in verses 9 through 13 he hadn't thought about before either, such as the Son of Man that was sitting in front of him was also in heaven as the last words of verse 13 tell us. But then in 14 and 15, Jesus transitions from our vital salvation, that is us being born again, to our legal salvation, that is Jesus paying for our sins on the cross so there is nothing to lay to our charge so that we will not perish but have everlasting life. Now what he has introduced to Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15 are this. The Messiah, the Son of Man, equivalent terms to Nicodemus, the Messiah that you as a nation of Jews are looking for is unlike what you think. It's unlike what you desire. You're looking for a conquering king, a prince like David, that will deliver you from the rest of the world, restore the preeminence of Israel, and reign forever. They're going to say later in this gospel, but I thought Messiah was to live forever. Oh, he does, just after his resurrection. None of which they could grasp. The the disciples and the apostles couldn't even grasp the truth that Jesus is now laying on a ruler of the Jews. So he has introduced the fact that the Messiah is going to die. That That was a traumatic piece of information for a Jew to hear. And not only is he going to die, he's going to die at the hand of enemies in a Roman death because he's going to be suspended above the earth on a pole like Moses suspended a brass serpent on a pole in Numbers chapter 21. He then points out in verses 14 and 15 that eternal life is evidenced by believing on this son of man, rather than circumcision in the law of Moses. Furthermore, this evidence can be shown by Jews and Gentiles extending the blessings of salvation beyond the borders of Israel to the whole world of God's elect chosen out of every nation. This is all in verses 14 and 15 by looking at the words, lifted up, whosoever believeth on Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. Four, now Jesus is going to take it a step further and explain how all this takes place and what is the ground and source and basis of God guaranteeing eternal life for all those that believe on his son. There isn't an offer here. There isn't a condition. There isn't a means. It isn't even in the text. And the rest of the Bible tells us that believing is not a condition, believing is not a means to eternal life, it is the evidence and proof of eternal life. Only those that are ordained to eternal life ever do believe. Right. Acts 13, 48. Those that believe already are in possession of eternal life. John 3:36, 647, 524, and other places. Right. Those that believe are already born again and have passed from death unto life. Amen. Oh, brethren. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with me today, Amen. Believe on Him with all your heart. When Philip said to the eunuch, "If thou believest, thou mayest." Right. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's right. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Believe that with me today. Yes. Love the God that sent His Son, and love the Son that was sent and loved us and gave himself for us and let's serve him with zeal or your words that you believe are false before we get to John 3 in the last three verses of John 2 we learn that there were some that believed on Jesus but he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in every man's heart what is in your heart he knows it where does he rank on, in pecking order of importance to you Oh, brethren, let's believe today. This God, the God of the Bible, loved us and gave his son for us to save us out of every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people and guarantee our eternal life. That we shall never perish, though we have sinned equally to or worse than those that shall perish. All glory to God. The Jews were certain that God would condemn and destroy all the Gentiles They believed that salvation was only to the natural progeny of Abraham. This was shocking news to be hinted at here in John 3, 14 and 15 by the whosoever and extended by the word world in John, in verse 16, broader than Nicodemus would have ever given it credit that the God, God's love and God's salvation in Christ extended beyond the borders of that nation. Listen, the apostles were still having trouble as late as Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15 hearing about the conversion of the household of Cornelius. God had to do something special with Peter to even get him to go visit Cornelius, an Italian. It never crossed their minds that an Italian could be saved. All the Italians ought to stand up and shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. Their the word, the words in Acts 11 are, Then hath God granted repentance to the Gentiles unto eternal life? Yes. Amen. Even to the Gentiles. And do you know what? In Acts chapter 15, the apostles reversed it and said it this way. Yes. That God's mercy, by God's mercy, we trust that we shall be saved even as they. Amen. <laughs> Whoa, I like it that way. Yes. That's the Jews looking to the Italians as an example of how they would be saved. That is apostles looking to a a centurion as to how they would be saved. Oh, brethren, believe with me today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great divider. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible, it's going to separate you from your friends. It's going to separate you from your toys. It's going to separate you from this world. Because he has called us out of this world to follow him. He has called us to hate all the dear relationships in life, all the dear possessions in life in order to love him as a true disciple. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the conjunction four. That four that opens up 16 ties us into verses 14 and 15 and to realize that that ruler of the Jews had just heard some marvelous things that God would do by his son. Let's get to the next word. God For God, when we use that little three-letter word in our English language, God, we are referring to the Lord Jehovah of the Bible and to no other. Only the monotheistic Jews could speak intelligently of a supreme divine being like the Lord Jehovah. We have Jesus, we have Nicodemus, and when Jesus uses the word God, it is understood between them who he is referring to. He is referring to the true and the living God. He's referring to the creator of heaven and earth. He is referring to the God of the burning bush that said to Moses, go tell the elders of Israel, I am hath sent you. Tell them my name is I am that I am. That God opens up John 3.16 and if you don't get that down solidly, you're going to get into John 3.16 and create a God to your own liking. I am constantly angered, troubled, frustrated studying John 3 because of the number of heresies that have been taken from it, but that these verses are our verses. Amen. They do not understand them any more than they do Revelation 3.20 or countless other verses in the Bible. We have to put a proper sense on so many verses to have those verses fit the whole testimony of Scripture and to teach the truth of God's grace to us in salvation. Right. God, Jesus and Nicodemus were citizens of the only nation God had ever loved. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. Of all the nations of the earth, I've only known you. God said. God gave his word only to them. It had been hid and taken from all other nations. Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20. This God had loved the nation of Israel. This is the Lord Jehovah of the Bible. Without variation at all from eternity. He never changes. He is the, I am that I am independent of all creatures, independent of all other beings. That name is glorious. I am that I am. You don't make me anything. I am Lord of heaven and earth. You don't make me Lord. I am Lord. I am independent of all creatures. I need no one. I need no thing. I am all inclusively and infinitely so in myself. I am from eternity. I inhabit eternity. I need no other. I can find no other. Nothing adds to me. No creature can move him. No creature can restrain him. No creature can even question him. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. He is the potter and we are the clay, and that's the way it is. And if you don't like it, lump it. Because he's taken you from the lump of mankind and has made you a vessel of wrath for destruction. And he is having to call upon all of his long-suffering right now to endure you before he gets to send you to hell. God is not going to weep over anyone he sends to hell. That is a lie. That is a total lie. If he didn't want to send men to hell, he wouldn't have created them since he knew that they weren't going to believe and take the offer of salvation as Arminians understand it. They end up with a cruel monster that teases men with his love, then burns them forever in hell. Our God is not a cruel monster. Our God is a just and holy and righteous God that sends men to hell for their sins because they chose hell in the Garden of Eden. Our God is unfair as was prayed by a young man in the back room this morning. Our God is unfair because He's merciful and saved some because all deserved to go to hell. He is the potter. Mankind is the clay. We cannot question Him. I hope you like Romans chapter 9 and verses 19 through 24. If you want a modern translation of verse 21 or verse 20, it is not nay but, oh man, because you didn't use anything like that in a sentence in the past week. What you did use was shut up and get real. The Lord was telling man to shut up. Nay but. Who do you think you are, that can ask a question about my righteousness in how I deal with men, especially with men like Pharaoh, that I choose to harden in their sins. Pharaoh sinned. God didn't sin. God just hardened him and left him in his sins. When God softens a man, He does it by regeneration or by redirecting them against their wicked nature to do something good and kind. He's righteous always. All those verses saved me. A long time ago, and I thank God for them. Romans nine nineteen, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O oh man, Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor, right. that is the God I worship. Amen. That is the God I preach. If you want the cotton candy God that's out there, there's another 400 Baptist church, churches that want your tithe. We don't need your tithe or want your tithe. We want your souls, your hearts, your minds, and your mouths to praise him with one voice with us because he is worthy of it. Our God exists, thinks, decrees, and acts in perfect holiness and righteousness. Our God is the God of Adam. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And your sons, and your sons' sons, and your sons' sons' sons, and your sons' 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 shall surely die three deaths. They will die spiritually, they will die physically, and they will die eternally in the lake of fire. That is the God that opens up John 3.16. Now deal with that. That is the God. For, take, for eating fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how in the world could such a small sin send so many to three deaths? because of the second word of John three sixteen, for God. Amen. That's the God. This is the God of the flood that preached to them by Noah for 120 years and then drowned and suffocated every single one. He didn't care if you were a senior citizen or an infant. He didn't care if you were handicapped or an Olympic athlete. They all drowned. Right. Every single creature that had in its nostrils the breath of life. The second word of John three sixteen better be understood. He is not a god weeping over hell. Right. He is not a god that feels compulsion to save anyone except for his own honor and glory. There is nothing in man to move him. Gopher wood under fingernails by those outside the ark did not move him to compassion. He had already chosen to show compassion on eight souls for one man. And that was Noah and his family. And I mean Noah for his family. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the God that destroyed Egypt. This is the God that scattered the nations abroad with different languages at the Tower of Babel. This is the God that exterminated the nations of Canaan. This is the God that leveled Jerusalem and had women eating their own children in the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So when we say, for God, we better have the God right. We better have the for that introduces verses 14 and 15 to us. And before we go very far, we better have the right God. He met Adam and Eve after their sin. He laid further curses on Adam. He already died the moment he ate that fruit. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He died spiritually. He no longer had any affection or desire toward God. He died physically 930 years later, and he'll die the second death if he's not one of God's elect, and there's no reason to think so except Don Francisco. That's a songwriter that thinks God loved Adam, but that's because that songwriter thinks that God loved everybody. There's no evidence for that. There's three deaths, but before he gets to die, Adam got to sweat by the sweat of his brow with thorns and every every conceivable earthly impediment to harvesting from the earth. Women had sorrow multiplied and added to their conception and childbirth before Eve got to die. There's a God in heaven. He loves righteousness and he hates sin. He loves holiness and he hates wickedness. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity with any favor or approval. There is nothing inherent in wicked man to solicit his benevolence. There is nothing in humanity considered individually or collectively to move God to benevolence, to move God to kindness. You say, but he shows kindness to the whole world. Yes, it is a testimony and a witness against them. They will be called up in the great day of judgment. He has not left himself without witness in the earth that men ought to repent He's created everything that men would see the glory of God in the heavens declaring His glory and would humble themselves before Him. They are without excuse by all that He's done in creation, all that He's done in providence, all that He's revealed in their consciences, all that He's declared through Scripture. But there's nothing in man. It, for those that even think it, for those of you that want to consider it with me for a moment, it troubles me because it's a travesty of logic and it's a travesty declaring your pride that you would think there is something in you or your neighbors or the entire planet's population that should move God to benevolence, but you never think about God being moved to benevolence for Lucifer. Right. right. <laughs> Lucifer on his worst day is far more glorious than you have ever been. Right. Now there's a day coming but that's in the future. When we're glorified, just wait. Lucifer was never a son of God. Lucifer was never a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall be both. We are both. You can can just go ahead and count on it and put it in the bank because it's absolutely certain by the surety of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world do people think that that there's something in the human race that would cause benevolence from God? It's pride. It's pure pride. You think that you are something special. Why didn't that something special show up in Eden? Why didn't God say, Adam and Eve, I'm sorry for threatening you so severely. I can't do what I thought I was going to do. No, I'm going to spank you and send you home. I'm not going to give you an allowance for the next two weeks. And then everything will be hunky-dory again. There was nothing like that. There's never been anything like that. You say, why does he save any? Do you think it's because of something in us? Nope. Oh, no. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Amen. You say, well, how far are you going to take that? This far, the second half of the verse. Right. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And do you know what the day of evil is? The day he judges them. Yes, that's how much the Lord made all things for Himself. Let's get started right before we get into John 3.16. Once we get started right, the verse is easily understood. Once we get started right, and we're thinking that there are 31,101 other verses, the, the, the verse is pretty easy to understand. For God loved all of his elect believers out of all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and sent his son because of that love to guarantee their absolute future destiny that they would not perish but have everlasting life. And the evidence of it is for them to believe on his son. Because the purpose of John's writing, have you got that from my preaching so far that John told us why he wrote? That he might show that by believing we already have eternal life and that we would believe more so that our assurance would be greater. Right. No wonder he puts the word believe in here. When there's a different purpose involved, like James, the epistle of James, where faith to James was so dangerous that men would rely on faith, can faith save him? James's answer to that question no way. See, it depends on the purpose of the epistle. And and this gospel is telling us how we know we have eternal life. And the the verse 16 is just telling us, explaining to Nicodemus, the reason the Son of Man has to be hung up on a pole. And and Nicodemus, I know that you know that cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The Son of Man's going to hang on a tree because God loves his elect from every nation throughout the whole world so much that he sent his only son to die for them, to guarantee their eternal life. Without sin, there is no compulsion in God to love or favor any of mankind, but man is not without sin. So he is at once and always God's enemy. Why should God love man when he does not love his far greater creatures like the devil and his angels? If you argue about this, if you want to argue about this, I have the same kind of an answer that Paul did in Romans chapter 9. All I can say is that you are a broken piece of pottery with a big mouth right. yep. and a little mind. Amen. Amen. You say, where's that in the Bible? You get so nasty in the pulpit sometimes. I thank God for his word. All I want to do is preach his word. You don't like my nastiness? You don't like the God of the Bible? No, am I the God of the Bible? No. I just preach his word. Here's what it sounds like. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker! Exclamation point. Woe unto them that strive with his maker. You want to argue and debate and discuss this with God? Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. You're nothing but a broken piece of pottery, and the best that you should ever do with your life is to argue with other broken pieces of pottery that you find living on your street. That's the word of God. I like it. Amen. I remember the first time I read it with understanding. And I hope that you can take this because I don't know how to say it in English. It's a pleasure to meet you, my Lord. I Never. I hadn't heard about that God. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to know you. Thank you for giving me existence. So that I can know true dominion for the first time in my life. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. What if God makes a person with no hands? Who in here wants to go around and start blaming God? He hath no hands. You can't make somebody without hands. Oh, yes, he can. And there is none that can stay his right hand or say unto him, What doest thou? All that I just read to you is Isaiah 45 and verse 9. I just want to make sure that as we go through John 3, 16, you know who we're talking about. Because it started out with God. For God. So loved. For God so loved. So is an adverb telling us a little bit about love. In the way or the manner described. God loved this way. God loved in this manner. That's what the little word so means. It does not mean that God loved all men so very, very much that he couldn't help but send them a Savior to make sure that they were offered eternal life so that any one of them that wanted to pray the sinner's prayer could all go to heaven when they died. That is not what the word so means. It's a little adverb saying, God loved this way. What is the way? It's found by looking for the that. What is the that? That he gave his only begotten son. God God loved his elect enough sufficiently for the purpose as a result to send his son. It does not mean so very, very much that he must offer salvation. It does not mean so very, very much due to his nature or man's value. It's just describing for God loved the world this way, that he gave his only begotten son. It's in connection with the word that. If you, if you circle words and and connect them in your Bible, it's a so that that in this verse of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that, this is the re, a clause expressing the result or consequence of what is stated in the principal clause, and then there's another that, down further, that whosoever, this is the result and the effect that it has in a person that they believe on his son Jesus Christ, but we'll get to those that's in our course. God loved the world in the manner of giving his only begotten son for it. God loved the world in such a way, in the manner, as described in the rest of the verse, by giving his son for it. Therefore, God's love and Christ's death are coextensive, one resulting from the other. You find those that God loves, you have found those Christ died for. You find those that Christ died for, you have found those that God loved. That's what the verse is saying, and that's what the rest of the Bible teaches. They're coextensive. For God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is described, defined, limited, directed, and as a consequence of it, he gave his son. The two are coextensive. Who did God give his son for? How do you want to answer that question? Everyone that ends up in heaven, God gave his son for. God did not give his son for a single one that doesn't end up in heaven, for how could they be sent to hell? All their sins were washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Everyone in heaven is loved of God. You can never be separated from the love of God, according to Romans chapter 8. So everyone in hell... Do you know what they call hell? Separation from God. I have heard heard that so many times it makes my skin crawl. That hell is separation from God. Hell is eternal torment in a lake of fire. The wicked don't even know what it means to be separated from God. They've never been in union with God. They've never had fellowship with God. Stop making up nonsense and quote me the Bible. None can be separated from the love of God according to Romans 8, 38 and 39. Therefore, everyone in hell was never loved. We've already concluded that everyone in hell never had their sins paid for. What would they be in hell for? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Well, then why do you have the books open in Revelation chapter 20 and every single one of their sins brought to remembrance? For God so loved... God's love is limited to those for whom he gave his only begotten son to die. Do you know who they are? They're the vessels of mercy you read about last evening in Romans chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. God is holy and righteous. He cannot love a sinful being as such. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. God is holy and righteous. He cannot love an unholy or an unrighteous object. It is impossible. It is contrary to his nature. You say, but didn't God commend his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners? Yes, that's true. Just remember, we have five phases of salvation to deal with. And he had already chosen you in Christ Jesus before the world began. Right. Before you even had a chance to sin, he had already chosen you in Christ Jesus and set his love upon you. But when Jesus Christ died for you, all you were was an, was an enemy in sins. There was nothing in you to draw forth that love. He had chosen to put that love on you before the world even began. Right. Get your phases of salvation straightened out. I know, Mr. Arminian, that you've never thought about rightly dividing the word of truth. In fact, you've never even thought about dividing it, except someone once told you that there were two testaments in the Bible. There is nothing in God or in man requiring God to love man over devils. God hates the wicked and loves the righteous. Look at Psalm 5, five. Before I could get home and get my breath last Lord's Day, a brother had already sent me a picture of Tim Tebow in a stadium with Proverbs 16.4 on his eyelids, which I've already quoted to you. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And there was a placard in the background of Psalm 5:5, so we ought to read it. If it's good enough for Tim, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I speak as a fool. Psalm 5, verse 4. This is why we start with that second word, and we, hold to, we held to it for a few minutes. Psalm 5-4, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. God is not taking pleasure in America. God is not taking pleasure in Americans. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. They will be ushered out and cast into hell. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. God cannot look on a fool. And all men are fools by Adam and by their own sins. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, that is, telling lies. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. The bloody man is a violent man, and the deceitful man is a lying man, a perjuring man. So we have three verses, the middle of which is Psalm 5.5. Why isn't this verse put up in stadiums? The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Then how can any be saved? Very easily. Some of them were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. And by an everlasting covenant, God promised eternal life to them. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God promised eternal life before the world began. He promised eternal life in Christ Jesus where he put them. And by covenant, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. They aren't workers of iniquity to God because he put their iniquities on Christ who paid for them at the cross and he put Christ's righteousness on them that was earned at the cross. They're not workers of iniquity, but do you know what he'll say to everyone that he sends to hell? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, he hasn't forgotten theirs, that's for sure. And brethren... The truth is, we should all hear that, because we're all workers of iniquity. Right. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. How many men? All the believers in the world of every nation, language, and people. Every one of God's elect. Right. Look at that Psalm 5. How about seven eleven? Can you remember some of the single-digit psalms the next time someone wants to lay God's love for the human race on you, like Psalm five, seven, nine, and eleven. Psalm seven, eleven. God judgeth the righteous. That means He chastens them and defends them and treats them fairly and justly. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Seven, eleven. Then we can go over to nine. I mean, which verse do you want over here? How about verse 16 and 17? The Lord is known with a judgment which he executeth. This is not chastening. This is judgment and condemnation. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. How about chapter 11? Let's read 4 through 6 there. See if it lines up okay with Psalm 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. Do you understand the God that we worship, the thrice holy God that we worship, the God that is the second word of John 3.16 is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Habakkuk 2.20 Let all the earth keep silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He is on earth like the rest of us little worms. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. He sees everything. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Those that love violence, murder, slander, doing anything to any brother to cause them harm. They love violence. God hates them. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. The storms of hell will take them down into that flaming inferno where they will spend eternity, and we belong there with them, were it not for the love of God to send his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to guarantee our safe passage into heaven, to have everlasting life with him forever. Amen. He forgets the sins of some, and he remembers the sins of the others. Bastards are, cha- bastards are not chastened. Sons are chastened because God loves them. Right. Are you going to try to tell me that God loves the sons and the bastards of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 equally? Right. Oh no, brethren. God loves us and he shows it to us every day. If God isn't chastening you, do you know what it says about you? You're a bastard and not a son. Thank God for his chastening. In faithfulness he afflicts us when we sin to bring us back into the way of righteousness. Every day his love is over us. When he lets a man go and sin and doesn't chasten them, it's because they're bastards and he doesn't care about them. He cares about us. He loves us. He tries us. He judges us in a chastening way as these verses have described as they set up a a contrast between the righteous and the truly wicked. God's love is part of his everlasting covenant in Christ Jesus for the elect only. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. If, If some have not been drawn to Christ, then it proves that God did not love them. Are you able to follow that deep logic? If God draws everyone that he loves, anyone that he doesn't draw isn't loved by God. God chose his elect in Christ Jesus in order to love them. According as he hath chosen us in him. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. I can quote it this time, but let's go because I want some that are here to see it. Some of you know it. You could quote it to me. I'm thankful for that. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the choice that you made. Amen. The difference maker is God. The choice is God. The choice has always been his. He chose to show mercy and compassion on us. He chose not to show mercy and compassion on others. He shouldn't have shown mercy or compassion on any, strictly from a standpoint of justice, righteousness, and holiness. But God is love. And he wanted to reveal that to the universe as he bypassed the angels and loved some of us. Amazing love. How can it be? Amen. You still like that song, Brother Mark? Okay. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he hath chosen us in him. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. of uh, Verse 3. According all the spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places, that are in Christ, that are ours. According to verse 3, that verse 3 says all of that. All those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ that are ours were given to us by God's blessing, and here's how he did it. Verse 4. According, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He put us in Christ where he could love us because we were holy and without blame. He is a holy God that can only love holy objects, so He made us holy. There was nothing we had done. All we had done was sin. So God exalted His love toward us. Romans 5.8 But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, from a practicing standpoint, we were still sinners, but notice from the text, from God's legal standpoint, from His eternal standpoint, we were holy and without blame. You've got to divide those verses so that you can see them fit together to give one coherent, unified position of salvation doctrine. The Bible's description of God's love for his people is different from man's. God set his love on his church without regard to value in them. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. I'm going to hope that you remember some of these verses. I did not set my love on you because you were the largest of all people. I set my love on you because you were the smallest of all people. I set my love on you because I loved you. Right. That means he had just chosen to love them. Amen. God chose his elect in Christ where he could justly love them. Just showed it to you. God's love and its ultimate benefit is adoption as his sons. If you're not adopted, he didn't love you. If he loved you, he adopted you. They all go together in the Bible. God's love, as was prayed in this pulpit before I took the pulpit this morning, God's love affects change. God's love accomplishes things. God's love is not an offer. God's love is not a joke. The Arminian love of God is a joke. He loves those in hell as much as he loves those in heaven. I'm just trying to figure out how, do they sing all the time in hell as well as heaven? Are they all singing in hell about the love of God and having been washed from their sins in his own blood? I need to know, is everyone in hell singing about the love of God and having all of their sins washed away? Because according to that doctrine, he loved them all equally and washed all their sins away equally. So that I become the big difference maker. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to take the glory because I'm the one that made the difference. But that is not what the Bible teaches anywhere. Right. Right. Amen. There's only one soul winner, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. No one else has ever got a name in the book of life, not the Apostle Paul, not Billy Graham, not Jack Hiles, and not Peter, and especially not your pastor. Jesus put the name, got the names in the book of life by the everlasting covenant when God wrote our names there before the foundation of the world. Does the Bible say that the names were written before the foundation of the world? Yes. Revelation 17 and verse 8, it sure does. God's love is defined by his gift, and what a gift it was, it was the gift of his only begotten Son. You can never be separated from the love of God, though you can be from every other love you've ever known. They can turn and change on you. God can never change, and there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Comprehending the love of God and the love of Christ is the fullest relationship with God. Ephesians 3, until you're all filled with all the fullness of God. Basking in his love, not basking in his holiness. His love is value because he loved you in spite of you being unholy. But basking in his love brings about the greatest relationship that you can have with God, one of love. Comprehending it leads to the greatest service, for the love of Christ constraineth us, the Apostle Paul said. God's love leads to the most wonderful care in life. He is constantly slapping our wrists, reminding us, whispering in our ear, letting us trip over something in our life and realize that was stupid, why did I ever do that? And he said, good job, son. I'm glad that you see that you were stupid in doing that. I let you go a little farther than I could have because I wanted you to skin your knee so that next time you'll ride your tricycle a little more carefully and you won't take it out into the street. Constantly loving us. The love of God is incredible. God's great love does not quit until it has fully saved its objects. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. His love is not going to quit. Ephesians 2 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Look at his great love wherewith he loved us. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Amen. Period. Yes, Lord. His great love will get us all the way to heaven so that in the ages to come, he can show to us the greatness of his mercy and his love and kindness toward us. They abuse The love of God so much, they make him incapable of hating men. Amazing. Eternal punishment is beyond most of their comprehensions. And so the fastest growing doctrinal heresy, and I've told you this for the last five to ten years, the fastest growing doctrinal heresy is no hell. No hell. Universal salvation, no hell. Annihilation, anything but hell. Because they can't, listen, You preach a cotton candy God, and you think about a cotton candy God that loves everybody and is moved to benevolence by people, there's no way he can send them to hell. I remember the first time JWs came to my door when I was freshly married, 19, 20 years old. The first question to me was, could you take a blowtorch and burn a cat? (laughs) And I have jested with you in the past, and I shouldn't jest, but, you know, I said you don't know who you're talking to. (laughs) I'm not very fond of cats. Forget all that. The JWs knew how to reason with an Arminian. Could you burn a cat with a blowtorch? How do you think God could send someone to hell? Well, my answer, my little 19-year-old answer was, a cat is neutral toward me. I am not neutral toward God at all. I am a rebel sinner that has stuck my fist in his face and cursed him. It doesn't sound irrational to me. No hellers. Where does that come from? Misusing the love of John 3.16. For God so loved, they lose all sight of his holiness and his justice. As in 1 John, they can quickly find God is love. Do you know how fast an Armenian can find God is love in 1 John? Three seconds or less. If you give them 1 John, they can find God is love. Give them three days and they will not find God is light. What does it mean God is light? God is holiness and righteousness and there is no darkness in him at all. God is holy and righteous and there is no darkness that he can look on approvingly at all. What chapter do you think God is light is in? Chapter 1. Because John's going to get you started with the right God, and God is light. They'll do anything they can to have their little sound bites and turn God into something that he isn't. They have him in heaven weeping for all those that he loved, but he's got to damn in hell. They never think about the consequences of his omniscience creating them. I hope I've said that enough times over the last couple of years that you're able to ask an Arminian, do you believe that God is omniscient? when they attack you for the doctrine of predestination. Do you mean to tell me that God made some men to, to go to hell? Do you believe in, that your God is omniscient? Yes. Then why did he create the men that he knew were not going to believe on Jesus and go to heaven? while well, he still loves them. Supposedly. At least our God has a purpose. And you read it last night in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known. God is willing to make his wrath and his power known, and that's how he does it. He makes vessels of dishonor for destruction. Did God love Pharaoh? How did he show it? How about the Amalekites and the Canaanites that were to be exterminated? Did God love the Ammonites and the Moabites that were to be excluded forever from the congregation of the Lord? Does he love the workers of iniquity and the lovers of violence of Psalm 5.5 5 and 11.5? Does he love the vessels of wrath? Here's the more important question, and let's answer it and, and take a break. How do I know God loves me? Right. If the doctrine of God's hatred and the doctrine of God's love, as you've presented it, preacher, is true, how do I know God loves me? Well, that good question and its answer will find you either in or out of John 3.16. Do you believe the record that God has given of His Son, Jesus Christ? There are three that bear witness on earth. There are three that bear witness in heaven. And the witness of God that God has given of His Son is greater than any witness that's ever been given on earth. Do you believe the record that God's given of His Son? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you believe, truly believe, and you have works following and a changed life that proves it, then you are in John 3.16, and the God that loved so much that he sent his son as the effect and consequence of his love loves you. Do you love him? It's not enough just to believe on him. You say, but all it says is believe in John 3.16. That's why we recommend that you read a few more verses. That's why Tim Tebow, when he read the rest of the Bible, realized that there was more than John 3:16 in it. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I thought believing was up here. Believing is putting your confidence and trust in another person that what they have said is true, and they will sustain you. Do you love him? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? How so? Show us your love of him. Show us. If we love him, he first loved us. Do you want to know that God loves you? Love him. Because if you love him, he first loved you. You would not love him without him loving you first. You would not love him without him loving you and sending his son and sending his spirit to regenerate you, to change you to love him because the Bible says... God is not in all the thoughts of the wicked. He, they don't even think about him, let alone love him. If you love him, what are you doing for him? How much is he moving you in your daily life? How much are you delighting in him? How much do you want to serve his people? How much do you want to serve his church? How much do you want to sacrifice your timetable, your stupid little schedule, your money? How much do you want to sacrifice for him? He sacrificed his only begotten son for you in love. How do I know he loves me? How do I know I'm one of the redeemed? Do you believe on his son, Jesus Christ? The the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of anyone else. Not the Jesus of Joel. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible. And do you love him? Show us your love. Do you have works following your faith and your love Do you believe on Him in a life-changing way? Then John 3.16 says, It is so. God loved you and sent His Son, not because you have fulfilled a condition, but because you're showing the evidence of that great loving transaction for you. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.